Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 142. In this episode, we're talking about Palestinian identity and theology from a feminist perspective with Mara Sarji. Mara Sarji is a Christian Palestinian who was born and raised in Nazareth. She is currently finishing up a master's degree in anthropology at Tel Aviv University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. Brandon Herbert. So as we uh, continue on in this series on Palestinian theology, this episode with Mara uh, really highlighted that there isn't just one Palestinian experience. There isn't just one way to do Palestinian theology or Palestinian liberation theology that we heard about last uh, episode, but really that the experience of being a woman in Palestine really affects these conversations and really informs how we might begin to think about a new future for Palestinian liberation theology. What were some of your own kind of reflections on on the episode? I really appreciated Mara's reflections on why it's really important to do Palestinian theology in Arabic. And I think she had some really compelling uh, and interesting things to say about the difference between writing in English and writing in Arabic, this kind of theology. So you have that to look forward to. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation with Marach, just thinking about all the multiple identities that that she holds and that uh, she discussed with us, thinking about this issue of Palestinian liberation theology with a lot of kind of intersectionality, which I thought was really a helpful addition to this uh, to this series as she talks about being Palestinian, living in, in living in Jerusalem now, also being being a woman and just listening to the way that she navigates all of these identities, I think was just uh, really helpful to remind us of all the various factors that go into this complex issue is just really eye opening and, and helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website, thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Mara Sarji. Well, thank you so much, Mara, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Why don't you just begin by sharing with our listeners just a little bit about um, yourself, uh, where you've come from, where are you uh, living now, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, um, so my name is Maria. Um, I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel. I was born and raised in Nazareth, um, and now I live in Jerusalem. Um, I'm currently a master's student of anthropology at Tel Aviv University. Um, And I'm not employed, so I'm currently just very much involved within um, Palestinian Christian young adult circles like Chris at the Checkpoint Young Adults um, and trying to come back into being involved in church. So you talked about being a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Uh, Can you say more about that and why that um, is a kind of peculiar um, double identification? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. Um, honestly, I think it has been a journey for me to really discover also my identity, but the way that I define myself, because uh, generally speaking, I was brought up to within the Israeli education system and where I grew up, uh, we mostly identified as Arabs. 
and we were taught that we are Arab Israelis. Um, but later on, when I went to university, I started to basically deconstruct this definition um, and getting to know my history as a Palestinian and what happened in 1948 with the Palestinians. And it took me some time to settle on one definition. I don't think I am an Israeli. Uh, I'm not fully Israeli. And I don't think I will ever become a full Israeli just because I'm not Jewish. And according to the structure of the state and the way that the state defines who's a full Israeli, one has to be a Jewish person. Um, and I will never become that. I don't want to become a Jewish person. Um, but I think just because I have citizenship, I was granted many privileges that other Palestinians do not have, um, such as like voting a, in the Israeli system for the parliament or having to go to very good universities or having public services that are not really offered to Palestinians who are under uh, military occupation in the West Bank uh, or those who are residents in East Jerusalem or in the Gaza Strip or in the diaspora. Um, but I think for me, it has always been this game um, of knowing which card to put out first uh, when I identify, just because my the way that I define myself is very much in relations to other people um, and knowing um, what would make the other person uh, feel empathy with me um, and really see me first as a human and then can go into the different discussions of where we came from or why do we identify as Palestinians and what does Palestinian even mean, um, which is not very obvious to many people and even to myself. Thanks for that. And two, two things uh, I'd be interested in exploring more from that. Um, obviously, you're in Israeli in the sense that you're a legal Israeli citizen and you can vote. When you say that you will never fully feel like an Israeli, can you say more about what you mean by that uh, in the kind of not in the legal sense, but in the other sense at which you mean? Yeah, well, also, I don't know if we should add this, but like also legally, um, the state doesn't define itself as a state for all its citizens. Um, and in 2016, there was this basic law called the nation state basic law, which basically said uh, that the right for a national fulfillment or exercising the national right is only strictly for the Jewish people in Palestine and Israel. Um, so it's not even, even legally, I will never, never mount up to that. So, um, so you, don't would, you don't fulfill that at all? We're not allowed to do that. What's the activity to which you're referring, the, the national right here? Um, to have a national home. Yeah. Um, but when I think about being Israeli culturally, um, I don't feel like I belong to the Israeli collective. Like my first language is Arabic and it's not Hebrew. Um, and even my culture, the way that we do things, uh, the way we cook, the way we dress um, is not Israeli. Uh, we have different values that we go, th we, we believe in. Um, I think like in a different reality where everyone was living together, that might have been possible, uh, but we live in very segregated realities. Like I was living in Nazareth, it's mainly a Palestinian city. 
um, I was always surrounded by Palestinians. So even and watching TV, I consumed TV from different Arab countries and not from Israel growing up. So even the way that I grew up and um, just learned who I am, it was nothing connected to Israel uh, or to Israelis. Yeah, and the uh, the other thing uh, that I'd love to hear you say more about is the distinction between, or not distinction, but the specification from Arab to Palestinian. You said you, you grew up kind of identifying as an Arab and then later you deconstructed this and now you more identify as a Palestinian. Uh, what caused that shift for you and what is the significance of that shift? So I always knew that I was a Palestinian. Um, I always knew about the Nakba, but I never really knew in details or to what gravity um, the Nakba was, like it was the ethnic cleansing um, event. And when I went to university and I had to first interact with the Israeli culture or with Israelis, um, I realized how militarized their culture is. Um, and it just made me start thinking whenever I would say something in class about being a Palestinian and I get shouted at, or that we would fight with the professors about things that I wrote in my paper and them saying that I was too subjective because I was choosing a framework of settler colonialism to write in my paper um, and get really bad grades. It just makes you think. Um, and I think just meeting the other made me want to know why do I feel this, um, this like very deep, heavy feeling of not wanting to be here. Um, so I just started reading and watching documentaries and then I discovered that the Tel Aviv University campus sits on the remnants of a displaced village. And then realizing um, that everything, everything around me is built on the remnants of my people. So instantly I, I felt much more connected to my Palestinian identity. And just being able to identify as that, um, opened up so many different different ways for me to think about my future or about what I would like to be doing and that I shouldn't be um, I shouldn't be embarrassed of where I come from or even with the very negative things that we have in our community that it's not it's not essentially Palestinian it's something that's very contingent to the different factors that we have to suffer, um, the state policy, and also people choosing to be bad. Um, but I think it, it was mainly triggered by meeting Israelis and then going back to the history and learning about my identity and my family's history as well. So it, it's almost like your Arab identity when it came into contact with in, in Israeli spaces that it wasn't necessarily deconstructed, but it was more or it was more sharpened to kind of emphasize your Palestinian identity that was specified for your particular identity, but that only came about from kind of interacting with the other. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yes. I think what was deconstructed is the illusion that we can be equal citizens. I think that was mm. the, what was deconstructed. Yeah, so as you describe, you know, some of these um, 
different identities that you, that you that you possess and how you've kind of deconstructed some ways of thinking about yourself as you as you've gotten older and 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 gone to university and all of this what does passing look like for you in those spaces um you know you mentioned dressing differently and things like that but otherwise like in terms of not necessarily being recognized externally perhaps as being you know palestinian what what does passing look like and how do you negotiate your multiple identities in those types of spaces i think my answer will be very funny um just because after the first year of university i started passing as israeli um just because of i've realized that wearing certain clothes was much much more comfortable than wearing what we used to wear in Nazareth because of the climate and the weather um and people would not recognize that i was palestinian at first sight even after speaking with them for like a few minutes they would still try to um try to understand what's this accent that i have in hebrew generally i would get spanish portuguese um or italian sometimes and then like i would just tell them that i'm palestinian and people will freak out and you can see that they're like confused at the beginning like what are you doing here <laughs> so i think at first it used to be a fun thing to just pass as israeli um it would be much easier to get whatever i wanted if i wanted to go to a shop and buy something i would get better service um if i wanted to go to a bar i can go in without having been questioned about my age quote unquote which is not really directed towards age it's more about racially profiling people um but later on i realized now living in jerusalem it's very annoying for me that people see me as israeli instead of a palestinian and the palestinians think i'm israeli and they start shouting at me in the street in hebrew or like even in arabic and i'm like but i'm one of you guys <laughs> i think i have so many different mixed feelings about passing um i know that when i'm with certain friends um we would be stopped for a inspection someone who we would be asked for our identities um in jerusalem or um we would like we wouldn't be let in into certain uh restaurants or into bars just because we're palestinians and this is something that they don't want to taint basically the area with us being there um even looking for apartments like when i was looking for apartments obviously they would know that we're palestinians uh but generally speaking i would always give my muslim friends also crosses to wear so we can have a better approach uh we would be better approached by the landlords um because we're christians and we're not muslims to get, so we can rent the apartment if we wanted it i mean in, i'm interested in uh how this has played out when you when you lived in tel aviv because everything i hear from people from at least israelis who live in tel aviv they go oh yeah i love tel aviv it's so progressive we're all about dukiyum like yo coexistence this like we're so progressive we're like the with the most inclusive city in all of Israel um but i always think like i've i've only heard israelis say that and i've always wondered like what is it actually like 
as a Palestinian who who for for which that actually might feel even like more oppressive because they can be maybe maybe they're under the guise that they're all super inclusive except for like this major issue which they which is often like ignored in you know in public discourse and, uh on or at least like you know popular media discourse and whatever um so i'm just wondering like what have you have you experienced that way of tel avivians like thinking about themselves in that way and like how does that come across to you in terms of your experience in the city yeah i, I don't think tel aviv is an inclusive city it, it is not um people just pretend they are um, yeah i thought so but yeah <laughs> yeah um at first, I think I was, I was, I was expecting it to be inclusive, um, but when the when I started to meet more and more people who live in Tel Aviv for a few years, um, and having these, now looking back at it, very stupid conversations of, um, wait, so you're Arab. Um, how do your parents feel about you now going out to bars and drinking or like going on dates? And asking me all of these like very orientalist questions, um, and the moment that I would identify as Palestinian, they usually men would do their episode of breaking the silence to me. So there's this organization called Breaking the Silence. Um, it's an Israeli organization where they bring past uh, soldiers to to go on tours and basically break the silence of over what they did in the occupied territories. Um, so what I mean by breaking the silence episode, so these men would come up to me and like start a conversation and then realize I'm Palestinian. Um, and then wanting to show me that they're actually good people, they would tell me what they did in their military service. Um, some of them would tell me, yeah, we arrested kids or yes, we did that or we, um, so they would just like tell me what they did. So is this like a, a like a confession? Is this meant to is this meant to go? Oh look, we actually did really nice things. I helped build a house. Or is this meant to be more of like a cathartic confession of what they did? Or what is this? <laughs> I think it's their pathetic way of trying to show me that they're actually nice people. But you know, we had to do what we had to do. So yeah. so like it's like they're honest, but they're not actually apologetic. No, no, they, they weren't apologizing. They were just telling me that this is what we did. Um, but actually, we had to do it because they were throwing rocks at us. Um, so please, would you, would you like to go out with me? It, usually, it would be in this order. Uh, just, just for uh, tips for any of our, if any of our listeners were in the IDF, which is highly unlikely, um, uh, th this didn't work. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like state the obvious. If you're if you're in the IDF, don't try to pick up girls this way. Unlikely to work. For, okay. Firstly, because it's unethical. L less so because it doesn't work. <laughs> but... I have so many stories to share from my like dating life, but I wouldn't share this on a podcast episode. It's <laughs> <laughs> <This> probably wise. <laughs> oh. Wow. So we've talked a bit about how um, you 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 exist in multiple identities as a Palestinian within kind of more Jewish bases. But what is it like being a you know a Christian in kind of more uh, predominantly Muslim spaces? What what is that those kind of identities of you being an Arab, uh, Palestinian, and also a Christian? 
So growing up, I was always surrounded by Christians, or at least even in schools, they used to be very selective. So they would choose mostly Christian, some Muslims who come from upper middle class. Um, so I never really had to deal with these questions of um, being the other or being the minority. Um, only after going to university, I started interacting with Muslims from different areas, from places where they have never met a Christian before. Um, and I had to explain what I believe in and how I grew up and try to give them a better idea of what a Christian is compared to Western media. I think it was a challenge, but it was such a good challenge for me. Um, it made me, it, it was one of, one of the factors that made me identify more as a Palestinian, the moment that I got Muslim friends who were, who did not grow up in the same uh, background or same school or same like institutions like I did. Sometimes I would get very discriminate, discriminatory comments from Muslims, um, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that that's what uh, defines my relationship with Muslims. I think there's just much more that we can learn as Christians from the Muslim majority than they can do from us. Um, just because of the, as Christians, we manage to accumulate wealth and keep it within the community. Um, and that's something that the Muslims see very clearly. Um, it's also in the, in the habitus and the way that we carry ourselves, what we wear, how we talk. It's very, you can see it very clearly. Um, and having mixed now with Muslims from different backgrounds, I'm not saying that I got to where I want to be, but I'm on this learning process um, with how to respectfully having a dialogue with a Muslim and how to listen to what they believe in and what's important to them without having to evangelize them <laughs> as we have been taught. So you've shared with us a little bit about your experience, kind of the uh, your double experience as a Palestinian in Israel. Um, how does that come into your uh, identity as a woman? Uh, and how might that uh, intersect as well with um, Palestinian theology? I know this is a broad uh, question. In the last few years, um, after going to university um, and also having Muslim female friends, I've come to realize that um, different aspects of my identity, um, they come to be in their fullest whenever I was pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable uh, of me to be as a Palestinian or what was acceptably female in the Palestinian community. Um, or even coming back home with some of what Israelis um, value, uh, such as like individual liberty or um, trying to make my own decisions as a woman rather than having to stay within the framework of the family. Um, I think this is such a broad question and it, it will be hard for me to answer it fully. Uh, it, I will try to answer it from my own experience, which is very much dependent on the background that I came from, my religion, um, you know, socioeconomic status, um, and even the way that my parents treated us as kids, like everything just comes together to form my own, um, my own 
experience and the way that I now try to navigate different spaces with these different identities. Um, but I think what I've been learning the most lately, um, that what's hard about being a woman within Palestinian circles is trying to defy or trying to push back against the, the identity that was given to us by the community. Um, especially with the way that our identity is always tied with men. Um, I was al I'm always my dad's daughter. And I was, it was said to me that I cannot do whatever I wanted until I get married. So the moment that the responsibility of protecting me or of protecting my honor moves from my dad to my new husband, then I'm free to choose whatever I wanted according to uh, my relationship with my future husband. Um, and I think the more that I hear about stories of different women who are working with clergy, clergy or who are working within Christian institutions, I realize that what is preached from the pulpit is not necessarily what's actually happening on the ground. Um, even though many, many pastors believe in the equality of men and women, but the moment that a woman are asking for their rights in the workplace, or they're asking for to be um, given more responsibility or of um, trying to keep the boundaries within the workplace. Um, like we're always approached with these explanations that are so sexist and that always come back to this foundational idea that women are in essence by God's creation are supposed to be mothers and therefore we don't get to have the same rights as men. Um, and it's something that's not, it's not only in the workplace, it's everywhere else. Um, and just by the fact that whenever I go out when I'm back home or um, whenever I just like, I try to continue my same lifestyle that I've built for myself over the past five years, I would always be asked like, why are you doing this? Why are you wearing this? What would the neighbors say about you now going out this late at night or that, if a guy is coming to pick me up, what would people say if something wrong happens? Um, so it's always it's always this circle and this loop that comes back to first my purity. That's for some reason something that's so valuable within our community, but it's also my relationship with my dad or with different men, um, and it's it's so frustrating and it angers me that we're still treated this way, even within Christian circles. I was, I'm always asked who's my dad whenever I meet someone. It's the way that, so the entire framework is built on communal belonging, but it's belonging to the patriarch and it's not necessarily belonging organically and equally to others. Do you see some kind of analogy to how you are treated as a Palestinian and how you are treated as a woman? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it's, you know, it's in different spaces, whatever boundary you are pushing, you will get pushed back. So within the Palestinian community, the moment that I'm pushing the gender boundaries or the gender ex expectations, I would get the same treatment um, as if I'm, as when I'm pushing the boundaries within Israeli communities about me being Palestinian. Um, 
And I would sort of get also the same answers that you're not supposed to be this way or you're not allowed to do this um, because there's no such thing as Palestinian and because women were created to be this way. Um, so yeah, it always creates clashes, especially now after that I'm trying, I'm really trying to act as an adult and make my own decisions. But when I go back home, I'm expected to act in a certain way that would just submit to my parents and to whatever they want and what, like, that would lead ultimately to me getting married and having children. <laughs> so when I think about theology within Palestine, I think what the theologians have done so far is good. I'm not going to say that they didn't. They, they went a long way to do what they did. Um, however, what they reflect in their theology is very, very androcentric. Um, they speak from their experiences as men who never have to deal with these restrictions eh, over movement, over what they speak, over how they act, who they talk to, um, because they're men. They, they can just leave at any time they wanted without having the permission of their parents. Um, and they speak of um, this Palestinian experience that's very much, it confirms into the national narrative, which is also very patriarchal. Um, for those who understand Arabic, uh, when Palestinians, and especially Palestinian men, talk about the land of Palestine, they talk of the land as a woman, as a woman that has been raped. And just adopting these images um, and national ideas that's very, it's very rooted in patriarchy is very harmful to us. Um, I would never want to liberate Palestine as a woman that was raped. Like it's keeping these ideas um, as, as a thing that motivates us towards working for justice. It's so wrong, it shouldn't be. Um, and whenever they talk about liberation, they talk about liberations in the sense of we're liberating ourselves from the Zionist rule. But I don't want to be liberated only from that. I wouldn't like to be liberated and then having to deal with the same gender dynamics that we deal with today. Um, because in all honesty, Sometimes to be around Israelis gives me more freedom as a woman than in Palestinian spaces. Of course, we have to remember that I come from also upper middle class and I do have the means to live the life that would allow me to do that. Um, but just the idea that sometimes I feel much safer within Israeli, um, Israeli spaces and so because I wouldn't be harassed, compared to Palestinian spaces, that itself makes me think, like, is this the liberation that I want to see? Or should we be preaching theology that would empower women and would define women as independent creatures who have full dignity without having to even think about our sexuality or what we do with our bodies and how we behave? Um, and 
within Christian circles, we always talk about Virgin Mary uh, in Palestine. Um, but the way that we talk about Virgin Mary, just by the fact that we can never even imagine Mary losing her virginity after uh, giving birth to Jesus, or that idealizing the suffering that she went through as something that is good um, and that brings hope to Palestinian women is, I think, is also, um, it's also violent. Because I think the theology that we should be producing, um, it should empower women, it should show women that they shouldn't be suffering and that suffering is not okay. And there, there are so many good things you just said. I, I want to kind of pull out two things that I would, I would love to hear a little bit more on. One was just your last point about the Virgin Mary. Are, are there other examples or other characters uh, within uh, scripture that, that have been used to kind of, uh, you know, prop up a more patriarchal understanding of your role and experience as a woman? And the second thing is, you know, if you maybe if you were to write a book or if, if you wanted to set the uh, the course of Palestinian liberation theology, what would it look like? What would the future look like from a feminist perspective? Yeah, those are very, very good questions. Um, I think having not gone to church for a few years now, um, all I remember, uh, generally speaking, that the preaching about leadership roles was always from the book of David, uh, like talking about David or talking about different men who were leaders um, of the Israelites or of the churches in the New Testament. Um, and whenever women were used for preaching, they usually were, um, the message would be generally, uh, women should be faithful to the positions that we've been given um, and that we should take care of the community and uh, serve uh, people faithfully. Um, and generally, like, I remember that they would use the different Marys um, to, they use the story to tell us this uh, message. Um, but I think I dream about Palestinian liberation theology from a feminist perspective to be grounded in women's experiences. Um, I think Palestinian women are so strong. They're stronger than the men. Um, during the Nakba, the women took care of their families. Uh, they were the ones who made sure the survival of the Palestinian people. It's the women who went for different jobs and still took care of their kids. So Palestinian feminist theology should start from the personal experiences of women who have gone through first the Nakba eh, or those who have gone through experiences of sexual violence or assault um, that is very prominent in, in our community. Um, and through their stories, um, question the Bible and question um, God in what way we can relate to God in these situations. Um, and try to even relate to God as a female and not as a male patriarch, uh, which is something that I think would give so much hope to the Palestinian woman. And it shouldn't be uh, a theology that only speaks to Christians. I think it should be a theology that speaks to the entirety of the Palestinian woman. Um, Muslim, Jews, atheists, Christians, 
um, everyone should find a message of hope within this theology. And I think the framework should definitely change. We should not keep the same framework of women are made to raise families, that the highest achievement that a woman can do is get married. Um, but try to give more stories, more have more preaching about just, I don't want to say single, like singlehood, because that like that hits into a very certain um context within the US evangelical circles, but it should honor community, but at the same time, honor the woman for who she is and who, who she chooses to be. Um, that without even touching about, upon the queer um, question. But I think that should be left for another person to do that. Um, and in different conversations, I was thinking with my friends about um, what the naming of this theology should be like. Uh, should it be called feminist? Should it still hold on to the liberation theme? Or should we think about survival themes or sumud themes, steadfastness? Um, so I think we're still in the, the very, it's not even emerging yet, field of feminist uh, Palestinian theology. But what's important for me is that we go back to thinking in Arabic, to expressing it in Arabic, um, and then try to break the framework which Arabic still supports in the patriarchy. Do you want people to use Arabic for, um, in, in order to speak to the Arabic-speaking community? Uh, or is there also something about, uh, I think you insinuated that there's something about the structure of the language itself that reinforces these ideas and that's, and that's worth questioning or? Yeah, so I think first, since the target audience are Palestinians, we should be speaking a language they speak. So Arabic seems like the best decision. But also the moment that we try to steer away from English, all of the problems that come from the West when it comes to gender dynamics would not be in question. Um, we would try to focus more on the dynamics that we see here in this context. Um, Although I think since we do believe in some, in some aspects of, at least I do believe in some aspects of liberalism um, and individuality, um, individualism, thinking in Arabic helps me try to not focus on that or not have my starting point from there rather than my experience as a Palestinian in this context. It's just different languages. You just think and you talk through different discourses. Um, so our theology should speak into the discourses that exist in Palestine. And those are predominantly um, are used or are they're expressed in Arabic. So it should answer in Arabic. Um, and lastly, um, I do think that the use of Arabic at the moment is very patriarchal. The words we, we choose to say um, the different notions that support what we say is patriarchal and it's very um, rooted in the language. So I think the moment we start thinking in Arabic, we will come up with different terms and we will come up with different expressions uh, that would allow the framework to change and to open up and be more inclusive um, of the different genders in society. 
Now, all that is just is, is, is just fascinating because yeah, I think you're really highlighting how difficult <laughs> these issues are, is that it's not simply just you're a Palestinian and you are living under occupation or you, you know, you have, uh, you're being discriminated against, um, et cetera. That's all happening, but you're also experiencing your Palestinian identity as women. And that comes with a, a whole host of other issues that we've talked about, but then you're, you're also adding another, la- another, uh, la- um, another layer onto it with language is that what language are you And I only speak one language and I do it pretty poorly and you speak more multiple languages and are thinking in other languages and you're trying to navigate all these different spaces and language and i think trying to resist um you know the just what you said about you know resisting uh to some extent the kind of western influence uh you know a lot of you know we've talked on on this podcast uh before about you know the experience of women uh, in the church and in theology and we have a very, very, very long, long series on that. And uh, our listeners can have probably already found that, but they can check that out on our website. Um, but, you know, a lot of that is from a Western perspective. And there might be something that can help uh, in those conversations. But, you know, you're just highlighting that intersectionality is so important to keep uh, in focus here, is that you're not just experiencing an issue from one identity, but multiple. What do you think motivates Palestinian theologians to write in English? Not that they all do, but many of them do. So I can never know their real intentions behind why they chose to first write theology and in English. Uh, But I think they get more recognition uh, the moment that they write in English and to Western audiences. um, Both in status, but also financially. It would. It seems more profitable to write in English. Um, you would be asked to go on conferences. You would fly for free. You would have connections, um, and I think that's something that's very attractive for um, theologians who know that in order to mobilize an entire community that's very privileged, it would take so much effort. So it's much easier. I think it's the easy way to write in English. Um, I think Palestinian theology should not first, as I said, be in English, but it should not depend on writing necessarily. I think the way that we transfer knowledge is mainly through listening and speaking. Uh, Therefore, our theology should also be very accessible through that medium rather than just writing. So before the podcast, which our listeners didn't hear, uh, you mentioned uh, something about interest in uh, ministry and theology. Uh, can you say more about um, what uh, maybe you would hope to do uh, in the future and what kinds of things you might be planning on doing and, and why? I think these are all like small dreams that I'm not necessarily sure that they would come true. Um, I think in a different context, in a different society, they definitely are more plausible. Um, But currently I'm applying for um, postgraduate studies in uh, theology, hoping that I would be one of the people who would develop feminist theology in Palestine. Um, But I would like to work in ministry after I finish and graduate, but I know that the opportunities almost don't exist. 
Um, so even if that is not possible, I would try to push for the next generation of women to be able to do this. So maybe I'll just have to stir the pot a bit within churches and maybe younger women can be pastors or they can be preachers um, or lead churches. Um, although that I would really love to do that in the future. If you had the opportunity to be a pastor, to be a minister, but it wasn't in Palestine, would you take it? No. No. Um, maybe for a training period, but not indefinitely. Um, I think I, I struggled for so long with my calling and why I was born here, knowing that my parents wanted to immigrate for three times and they decided not to do that. Um, and then growing up here and getting to know the context and learning about my identity as a Palestinian and exploring my faith at the same time. Now I realize that I'm, even if I don't have a call to ministry, I'm called to stay here in the region. So, and I think that's the calling for all of the Palestinian Christians. So moving away would be just running, running away from the difficulties and from the work that needs to be done. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think often, at least in the West, or in, and probably not so much now, but when we think about, you know, when certain types of Christians think about feminism or think about feminist theology, they see it as, you know, not taking the Bible seriously, not having a deep sense of faith, not being obedient to God. And I think in just that answer of, you know, would you be willing to, you know, forsake your home and your land for the thing that you really want? You, you just said it, no because you feel like you are called there and that is what it means to be obedient to God. Um, and I just think that's, I think that's beautiful. I think you can't be accused of being, you know, disobedient or anything like that. Um, and it seems that your feminism is, is a way to fulfill your calling in a more serious and sacrificial way um, that I think is deeply beautiful. Um, maybe it just has a final question and, and you've already hinted at, at it throughout this episode, but you know, what is the future that you are hoping and praying for? I think I, I, I dream of a liberated Palestine, but not um, politically liberated, um, but a Palestine that's very inclusive um, from the river to the sea, inclusive to Palestinians and to Israelis, um, a Palestine that's safe, to live in, it's safe to go outside at night. Um, it doesn't have organized crime. It's not under occupation. Um, it has a church that serves the community rather than it serves itself. And I dream of a place that people would love to live in. I dream of a place that I would like to bring children if I ever got the chance to. Um, but at the moment, that's not the case. Well, thank you so much, Mara, for sharing all of your wonderful uh, wisdom here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This Just by like preparing for the episode, it, it made me think so much about what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Um, 
And that's very helpful for me to motivate myself to keep going. going.